Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at RiderFlex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the RiderFlex show for updates on new episodes. And by the way, if you haven't already, check out the book we recently launched, The RiderFlex Guide, Inspiring and Hiring, available for purchase on Amazon. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360. Fuel your brand. Joe O'Connor on the RiderFlex podcast. Welcome, Joe. How are you? I'm doing good, Steve. How about you? I'm doing fine. Love that Irish accent, my friend. Love it. Uh, although it's a little watered down a little bit. I don't It's not as strong as some people I talk to that, that uh, grew up. I'm assuming you grew up over there. I know you went to college over there, but did you grow up there too? I did. Yeah. I'm only living in, in this part of the world, initially in New York, now in Toronto for just over a year now, a year and two months. Um, and it, it, it worries me that you've said that because actually I was at home for a wedding earlier this year. And one of my best friends played a playback of me doing another podcast where he was claiming that I've now managed to get myself an American accent. So you really you could have got me in trouble with that with that introduction. <laughs> I just saw a, uh, a video clip of four women from different parts of Ireland. Right. And they whatever, north, south, east, west, whatever. I can't remember the, the regions they were talking about, but uh they were dissecting each other's uh, accents and how a little bit different depending on where, where what part you come from. Is that accurate? Oh, it is. I mean, I probably have uh, where I'm from in Ireland. I'm from the the Midwest um, of Ireland. Yeah. It probably is a more neutral accent than Dublin or Cork or Belfast. So it maybe isn't as immediately recognizable, especially if you're not from Ireland. But yeah, okay. there's a huge huge change in the in the dialects for sure. What's it? Um, I don't. I'm not gonna. We won't spend an hour on on Ireland, but I'm curious about a couple of things, and I know probably most Americans are too that don't don't know the history. What what do the Irish think of Americans? Just in general, like if you're just at a pub and you're like, what do you think of Americans? If I just ask ten random dudes at a at a at a pub, what would they say? So if I'm being honest, the, the, the kind of the tone has probably shifted in the post-Trump era, and that might not surprise you. But in terms of, you know, international outlook on the American polity, um, there, there, there maybe is a little bit more of, a, of a, a negative undertone to that than there would have been, let's say, 10 years ago or when I was growing up. Um, I think... Yeah, I, I I think in the world that I'm in, um, I remember when I was moving to New York originally and was obviously taking up this role, you know, advocating for and supporting companies to move to shorter work weeks. There was definitely a lot of people that were saying to me, you know, you're basically moving to the capital of overwork to try and convince them to 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 work shorter hours. So, true. Um, true. so so definitely that's a perception that's out there as well. Okay, all right. Um, so that's true then in Europe in general. Um, is it? I've heard that, but I'm not an expert on it. I mean, I know there's more weeks of vacation. I think the benefits are better, but but generally, is it more work-life balance in Ireland? People are like, hey, look, I, I'm going to get my time off. I'm going to spend time with family. I'm not going to work 80 hours a week. Is is that the mentality? That truly is the mentality? 
I think when it comes to things like vacations and maternity leave and stuff like that, it is generally more favorable in Europe vis-a-vis -vis the States. Um, and certainly in Ireland, as you probably know, we have quite a lot of U.S. multinationals that are based there. Um, and there probably is some kind of a, you know, the, the growth of the U.S. multinational sector in Ireland. Some people would attribute the kind of growth of this always on work culture to the, you know, to, to the prevailing uh, culture that U.S. multinationals would have brought to uh, to certain industries in Ireland. So um, that would be would be my my experience. Is it different in Northern Ireland? Is that is it a whole different mentality there or no? Pretty much the same. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't like to make a good stab at it, given that, you know, I haven't spent a huge amount of time in Northern Ireland. I didn't grow up there, um, but I would I would imagine it's not hugely different. OK, yeah, just curious. Um, I was vacationing in Cancun uh, one time and uh, my wife and I were at the pool having a ha having some drinks and there was an Irish couple there. And uh, uh, he we struck up a conversation and I found it fascinating, you know, just how he he. He was talking about how he's like, you know, he's like the healthcare, you know, it's free healthcare or, you know, I guess I don't know if free is the right word, but universal healthcare and more vacations and this and that. But and he was um, asking me questions about what it's like to be in America and, uh, you know, our style and, and different things and culture. And it was a fascinating conversation uh, to hear him talk about uh uh, what his thoughts are were about U.S. citizens, and Trump had just won the election, <laughs> and so he goes, he goes, so he goes about Trump. I go, what do you think? <laughs> it was so good. It was a great conversation. Really nice couple, by the way. Great, great uh, couple. And he, you know, overall, I guess my my point is, he had pluses and minuses. You know, he he had good things he loved about it, and he had things he didn't like about it, which I guess is the same in the U.S., right? I mean, maybe it's that way for every country, right? There's for probably sure. no. I mean, you, you know, know. I, I'm someone that that wanted to come and live in the states for for a period of my life, and have visited very regularly. I I am probably in a very very small minority, although it's a growing minority of Irish people that is obsessed with U.S. sports. I became a Buffalo Bills fan when I was about 12 years of age. Um, and there was something that that really drew me in about, you know, aspects of American sports, American culture. You know, most of my favorite bands are, are from the States. So certainly, you know, it's 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 a mix of good and bad, as it is with, I think, most countries, most cultures, most societies. Yeah. Your folks are still there. You all your family still in Ireland? Um, Being honest, I, I have an uncle and his family who are based in Kildare in Ireland. Um, I have another um, side of my family that's in Longford. I've got a, a another uncle that's close to me who lives in London. I'm an only child, um, and both of my parents passed away, one of them in 2017 and one of them shortly after in 2018. Mm. So um, my family home, which is in the west of Ireland in Roscommon, right now is is unoccupied. We go back there and we we visit for Christmas and for holidays. Um, but unfortunately, you know, I don't have the same family roots there that that I might have done five or six years ago. Oh, but you kept the place. So, so the place is empty and you go back for the holidays. Huh? Interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we haven't, you know, we haven't decided we've emigrated yet. You know, we're, um, we're, we're, we're still, we're still going back. Um, it's great to have the place there for visits, to have that community there. Um, and, and also, um, you know, we're, we're kind of leaving the door open to, to come back at some point. 
And we, is that a family? Are you married, kids, partner? What's the status there? So I have a partner and we have two Cocker Spaniels. So that's the equivalent of our kids. We brought them over from from Ireland to uh, to, to the US last year. So uh, her <laughs> name is Grace um, and she's actually working with me on this initiative that I'm involved in. Uh, and then we have two Cocker Spaniels, Ned and Lady. And And how did you meet Grace? We actually met. Um, we we knew each other for for um, quite some time, or knew of each other at least, on the basis that she was a public representative, was a local councillor for the Labour Party in Ireland. Um, I had been working for a number of years in the trade union movement. I was the head of campaigns for Ireland's largest public sector union. So we kind of floated in the same circles to to some extent. Um, and it was actually at the beginning of the of the pandemic that we. Um, we, we set up a, a not-for-profit initiative together to support small Irish businesses who had no online presence to kind of get them up and running and trading online. We did that as a kind of a voluntary initiative early in the pandemic. And, you know, I guess the, the rest is history. Is the Labour Party uh, the equivalent of the Democratic Party in the U.S. for the listeners? Can you educate them on that? Um, the, the the Irish political system is quite different to the U.S. and and even to the U.K., where you know people might be familiar with the Labour Party in the U.K. in that it's much more multi-party. You know, it's not a kind of a a two-person uh, or a two two-party system. You've got you know Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin, Labour, Social Democrats, the Green Party. You know, all of which have been in and around, you know, government formation possibilities o- o- over the years. So it's a it's a slightly different structure. So as a result, the Labour Party would be, you know, it, it was bigger and they got into government, lost a lot of seats, um, but they would be would be a much smaller entity than, let's say, the British Labour Party or the Democratic Party in the US. I see. Interesting. Well, I wish we had more than two choices here when we voted for president. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm not even going to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. OK. <laughs> uh, were you a good kid, bad kid? Were you a rebel? Were you straight A student? Were you, you know, altar boy? What were you like growing up? Um, I think when I was in what we would call primary school, which I think is is like your your um, your high school. Um, so kind of when I was when I was much younger, um, I was probably closer to altar boy. I was probably a lot more quiet, a lot more reserved, a lot more, you know, smaller circle of friends. Um, I would have been probably considered a bit of a nerd and a little bit geeky at school. Um, so <laughs> I, I think it was probably when I got to secondary school and um, maybe towards the end of secondary school that that my rebellious phase probably started. Is and that I, is that is that high school in the U.S. secondary school? I don't, I don't yeah, know. Maybe it is high school. So let's say primary school is kind of up to the age of maybe... Okay you know, 12, 13, and then 12, 13 mm-hmm. to the age of, I was 17 when I went to college, w- would be secondary school. Um, so, so okay. yeah, I, I think I, I was probably altar boy and then rebel and then probably found a good balance somewhere in between towards the end of my time <laughs> in college. Can college kids in uh, Ireland drink more than U.S. college kids? I don't know. I've always heard that the Irish can drink pretty, pretty, pretty good. Well, without having a good handle on the volume that U.S. college kids drink, um, I would say that they would have their work cut out for them to compete with us. You know, Um, there's definitely kind of a a running joke, you know, when you see even like U.S. movies with like frat parties and stuff like that, that, you know, someone's had, 
you know, three bottles of Budweiser and now they're, you know, they, they're uh, <laughs> absolutely crazy drunk and they're a big hero and kind of Irish people would be looking at that saying, you know, I, I, I'd, have, I'd have that done as, as a kind of a warm up, you know. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's pretty good. Uh, by the way, uh, before we get into career stuff, I got to tell you this for a long time. I've been married to Kim for 22 years for a long time. She thought she was Irish. She, it's a long story. She didn't really know her, her, her history too well and didn't know who her father was, different things anyway, for a, but she thought she was Irish. So, you know, every St. Patrick's day, we're putting stuff out. She always tells everybody she's Irish, this whole thing for years and years and years. We found her real dad. And uh, she made a connection with him. He was almost 90 by the time she she found him. And we go down to meet him. He's down in Texas. And we go down to meet him. And uh, and she says something about being Irish. And he's like, he's like, huh? He's like, what are you talking about? He goes, we're, not, we're English. It's Shropshire. She's like, we're just, you're not Irish. <laughs> and see, my wife was just for a week. She's like, I can't believe I'm not Irish. <laughs> That 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 must have been a blow. That must it was a blow. blow. I, I'm it glad was a... she was so disappointed about it. That that kind of said, says something, you know. She was, yeah, she was, yeah, def definitely. Uh, okay, so I appreciate you sharing some of that, some of that history. Thank you very much. Let's talk about your career a little bit um, before we get into four day work weeks and and things like that. Did you know what you wanted to be coming out of school? Was there a plan? Talk to me. Roll me through your career a little bit. Sure. Um, I, I, I don't think that I did. You know, I, I, I studied in accountancy, um, didn't love it, you know, did enough to be able to kind of get a pretty good degree and to be able to say I have some kind of a background in finance. So I'm, I'm kind of lit, literate in the in the in the world of numbers. Um, yeah. I went on to do a, a master's in business strategy and innovation, which I liked much more. Um but I ended up spending a number of years then in the in the student movement. So I was elected as students union president um, while I was in Galway in college. And then I ended up becoming the national president of our students union back in 2013. And I cool. think that was the thing that really, you know, I was always kind of politically and socially interested. But I think that was was certainly the period in my life that probably focused me on, you know, I, I, I want to do something that's much more about changing things and disrupting things then maybe my, my trajectory had been leading before that it, you know it, it it opened my eyes to a lot of stuff and, and made me probably a much more socially aware version of myself than than was the case before I before I started in in the student movement okay very good so the, those leadership skills did those come from mom dad uh where, where both where do you where did that seed get planted to step into a leadership role you think it's a good question. Um, I, I honestly don't know the answer. You know, I had, I had a hugely supportive upbringing. You know, we my 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 dad, um, you know, was an incredibly hard worker. Uh, my mom was a was a social worker. My dad used to to manage a, a seafood company. He would have done a lot of driving. So, you know, when I went to college, I was on a student grant. You know, we weren't particularly well off family, um, and I, I probably. In the early stages of college, took that a little bit for granted, you know, had my rebellious phase, but kind of righted the ship and got things right before before the end. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure. I would say that that probably values around, you know, working hard, respect, trust. I think they're all things that that very much came from my family upbringing. But the kind of, you know, the the business leadership and the kind of political interest stuff, I'm not sure that that was where it where it originated. 
You know, this may be a very granular question, but I'm curious, was there a moment in college where somebody approached you or you were with some friends or maybe somebody else was already in student government or a leadership role and they nudged you and they said, Joe, Hey, why don't you come to this meeting? Joe, Hey Joe, you should, you know, you, you have, you have the right skills for this. You got the right people skills. Why don't you come over here and run for this or run for that? The reason I'm asking you that question is because that is, that is what happened to me. I, I, wouldn't call myself a huge leader in high school. But when I got to college, uh, I was living in the dorms and and a guy nudged me one day. He's like, hey man, he goes, you need to come to the student student government meeting. I was like, I was like, okay, I guess. And uh, you know, the next next thing I know, I'm like student body vice president, but I, I got nudged and and pushed in that direction by some people. Uh and and I was blessed for it. How about you? Was there a was there a moment that you remembered kind of kind of maneuvering in that direction i i think that there was a, a big element of luck if if i'm being honest in that what what ended up happening with me was somebody that i i knew at the time and um, not particularly well but ended up becoming good friends with was over in my student apartment and um, speaking to a housemate of mine and they were running for for student union vice president and that conversation kind of led to me putting my hat in the ring, almost as a thing of this will be fun, you know, um, right. and I, I was a really late entrant to the race. I had done no preparation. I had no campaign team. You know, I, I effectively was a non-runner in that race, but I did the, you know, the big speech and the hustings that were held. Uh, I think I did pretty well. And, and that kind of that two week period of that campaign told me two things. First of all, I'm really interested in this stuff and I think I'd be pretty good at it. But secondly, I was so inspired by the fact that my group of friends and my community of, of, of people that were around me and that were supporting me, like they probably knew I was a bit of a no-hoper, but yet they gave up their time. They were willing to they were willing to, to kind of back me regardless of whether I was going to be the winning horse or not. And that really motivated me to say, okay, I'm going to come back next year and I'm going to do this right and I'm going to do this properly um, and I'm going to win. Um, and and that, that that's what I did. Awesome. Okay, very good. Talk to me. I, re I originally reached out to you because I saw that you were CEO of Four Day Week Global, I guess is the accurate name. Uh, I think it's a nonprofit, right? Uh, I reached out to you because I'm curious about that topic. I, I after, after working 70 hours a week for most of my life, you know, killing myself, making it, you know, I ran a couple of $40 million companies as an executive before I started Riderflex. You know, uh, I, I abused time with my family because, uh, you know, I just. And so anyway, the point is, once I got to about 50 and I started Riderflex, I really began to concentrate on work-life balance. I, I began to concentrate on spending time with my wife, spending time with my health, spending time with my hobbies, which I never did before. I mean, when I was in my 20s and 30s and early 40s, all I did was work. But I, but I have really focused on that the last five or six, seven years, and um, and I'm so much happier for it, <laughs> and just psychologically, physically, and uh, I do think we overwork ourselves as Americans in general. And um, so anyway, I, when I saw your profile, um, I thought, man, I, I'd like to interview Joe because I'm really interested in this topic. First of all, I guess maybe tell me um why did you go to four day week global and why did you leave 
uh, and then you can roll that into what you're doing now. That's a big question, but go ahead. Sure. Sounds good. First of all, I just want to say the story you just told about your own career and where you started out and your journey and where you got to is actually really common in the four day week world. I mean, we are still at this kind of early adapter phase of companies and leaders who are who are doing this. And, yeah. you know, a huge amount of, of leaders that are attracted to this come from a background of having been the kind of people that work themselves to the bone and maybe burnt out at some point themselves in the past. And they, you know, they've become enlightened to that. And now they want to create a different environment in their workplace um, yes. for the future. So, so that is quite a quite a common story that we we come across. So in terms of the the, the shorter work week, um, this is something that back in my, my previous role in Ireland, I first became interested in back in 2018. Um, we had done a survey of public sector workers in Ireland, asking them questions around work-life balance issues, their attitude towards um, work time reduction. This is a conversation that was starting to percolate a little bit internationally. There had been some trials in, in Sweden and, and in New Zealand. Um, and what really struck me by the response to that was the huge volume of working parents, predominantly women, who had responded to that telling a story about how they had already reduced their work time because of maternity leave, you know, returning from maternity leave, work-life balance reasons, childcare reasons. Mm -hmm. And what so many of them were saying was that, first of all, you know, that effectively the expectations that they had in their job, working four days a week or working 32 hours a week, but getting paid 80% of the salary, their expectations were the same. Their output was the same. You know, their responsibilities in the role was the same. So yeah. that told me a couple of things. It told me, number one, we have a gender equality problem in the workplace that I think a universalized shorter work week could, could really help to address. But also, secondly, this concept of Parkinson's law really holds true. This idea that a task will expand to fill the time that's available for its completion. Um, so that, that, that kind of inspired me to look into this subject more. Um, I organized a major international conference on the future of working time at the end of 2018 in Dublin. Um, in 2019, I formed the Four-Day Week Ireland Coalition um, and was the chairperson of that group for, for the first couple of years of its, its existence. And then last year in 2021, um, we designed the first ever Four-Day Week pilot program and research project in Ireland, which was really about providing training, mentoring, access to networking, and research assessment to companies who are interested in trialing the shorter work week. I see. Okay. All right. And then next, I um, I was coming to New York last September as a visiting research fellow with Cornell University to lead a research project on work time reduction. This is kind of something I was, being honest, I was doing it because I had never got the opportunity to travel. I always wanted to, you know, to 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 live or to work outside of Ireland, at least for for a period of my life. You know, because of the trajectory of college, students' union, career, it just never happened for me. And, yeah. and the stars kind of aligned in that four day week global, which is a, a not for profit based out in New Zealand and um, set up by two entrepreneurs that had introduced this in their own company um, a number of years ago. I, I knew them for a number of years. We'd been collaborating and they said, look, we want to run a similar pilot program in the US. We want to take that kind of structure that you've created in Ireland and bring it, bring it global. Um, okay. And okay. so that's what I've been doing over the last year. 
And it, it's a nonprofit, though, right? How how's it? Is it funded through cash raising, or how, how do you how do you stay alive financially? <laughs> so when I started with the organization, um, you know, this was really something that was was a a, a project of love from the from the two founders who okay. um, really believed in this idea, saw the benefits that it had for their business. So, you know, really the only income the organization had at that point were, was sales of Andrew, one of our co-founders book. Um, by the time I left, we had put in place a, a structure whereby companies that were participating in our pilot programs would pay a contribution based on the number of employees that they had in the organization taking part in the trials. So that really got us to a space where, you know, we were able to sustain our overheads and also grow the organization um, during the time that I was there. Okay, let me repeat what you just said because I want to make sure I understand. So, so if I let's use my own firm, RiderFlex, a recruiting firm. If I wanted to implement a four-day work week, but I just needed some guidance and training and strategy, etc., I could call four-day week global in New York and say, "I need help," and you you would say, "Yeah, that's cool. We'll help you." We're, we're a nonprofit, so we can't you can't really pay us, but if you want to make a contribution. Um, you know, we're, we're happy to help you. Is that, is that accurate? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a case where, you know, obviously everything that we were earning was being reinvested into, into the yep. organization, into yep. achieving its yep. goals, into its research and, and objectives. But, you know, it was a payment for service effectively. Um, okay. So, okay. Was the goal, was the goal, I mean, I know the short-term goal was to help companies transition to make life better for people. But was there a longer term goal to eventually get legislation passed uh, to to force companies to go four day work week or the, the vision wasn't that far out? Well, I mean, I, I think the use of the term forced is really what we were trying to avoid, because, you know, the if you look at the trajectory of the five day working week and the eight hour day back a century ago, this yeah. is something that it didn't start with legislation. You know, legislation was introduced after this concept was popularized internationally. It didn't happen everywhere all at once. It didn't happen in every industry. It didn't happen in every country all at the same time. This was a slow, gradual transition brought about by business pioneers like Henry Ford in the manufacturing sector, brought about by civil society campaigners and labor unions bargaining for this. So we were very much approaching this as, yes, our long-term goal was um, in that organization and, and is for me um, personally and in, in, in the new endeavors that I'm undertaking is about moving to a space where the shorter work week becomes the new normal um, all over the world. But our view was very much that this is something that that needs to happen in a way that isn't imposed on business, but actually partners with business to support them to make this transition in a way that's better for everyone, where the you know, yeah. wor workers see the benefit, but also businesses see the benefit of more focused, motivated, refreshed, productive workers, um, and also the, the really significant competitive edge that organizations that have done this have, have gained in terms of recruitment and retention. What do you say to the business owner that is super old school CEO, founder? They're like, what are you talking about, man? Like, don't, don't, if you take away one day a week, now all of a sudden I'm producing you know, instead of producing 10,000 mugs, now I can only produce 9,000 mugs next week because you took a week, a day away from me, blah, blah, blah. How do you respond? Well, I think that most of us would agree that in 2022, it isn't such a, a simple thing as one hour's work equals one hour productivity. 
And everything that we were doing was based on this concept of the 180-100 rule, um, which is trademarked by Four Day Week Global. And it's about 100% of the pay, 80% of the time, but in, in exchange for a commitment to delivering 100% of the output. So this was very much about how can you deliver the same results in less time using fewer or more efficient inputs? And, you know, we all know that not all priorities are created equal. Not all work tasks are created equal. So this really creates uh, an environment in a business which incentivizes people because of the transformative benefit that actually this extra time means for people in their lives, whether it's extra time with family, you know, for caring with, with their kids, um, you know, to pursue new skills and new hobbies. You, you create this, this environment where the company's interests in terms of its objectives and its targets and its metrics are aligned with the individual interests of, of, of workers. They're really, you know, they're, they are innovating and making changes to how they work, the way they work, their work practices in order to make sure that this is something that is sustainable for the business. Instead of calling it four day work week, why not just say, Hey, look, I'm going to pay you a hundred grand. Here's what I need accomplished on a regular basis i don't care when you work i don't care what your schedule is i don't care where you work from i don't care what your shifts are you want to work on saturdays and sundays and take mondays tuesdays off i don't give a shit just produce x y and z for 100 grand how about that i mean effectively what we're talking about is not is not a different thing it's just the structure under which it exists so for example you know the reality is, is that while we are talking about making time, you know, time should not be the determinant, you know, results or productivity should be the determinant. Agreed. But the reality is we live within a world where people are contracted to work a certain number of hours, a certain number of days. So if you don't kind of create that tension within a business, which forces change and forces efficiency and forces unlock potential to be unearthed, then it becomes difficult to address things like, you know, over long or unnecessary meetings, distractions and interruptions in the workday, you know, improving processes, making better use of technology. These are all the things that we've seen companies that have moved to a shorter work week address. And they've done that because they've made time the scarce resource. Mm -hmm. Hey, I love it all, man. I'm, I'm a huge fan. And by the way, what I described is exactly how I run recruiting from RiderFlex. I mean, I, you know, we have, we don't even really, we don't have an office. We're all 100% remote. And I, I generally just say, Hey, look, this is the job I need you to do. Yeah. We have meeting. We have a couple of scheduled meetings uh, on certain days, but I really don't care. You know, I've, I've never called any of my people and said, why aren't you at your desk? You know? <laughs> so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a huge fan, which is one of the reasons I wanted to interview you, interview you and have you on the Rider Flex podcast. All right. Tell me what happened. So this all sounds great. You're not at Four Day Week Global now. Can you share anything about why you left there and what you're doing now? Well, I think that the shorter work week movement is growing in the sense that it's going to require a lot of different inter interventions in order for this to become what I described earlier, the new normal. And I think that the work that we've been doing at Four Day Week Global in terms of coordinating these global trials has really made a difference in terms of building momentum behind the shorter work week, achieving social proof, and you know, building the, the research base and the evidence base, which, which I think has moved the conversation on from you know, three or four years ago when I talked about this subject, a lot of people would say, that's a pie in the sky fantasy idea. I don't think that that 
you know, is the conversation now. I think there's enough evidence out there to show that this can work for a lot of different businesses. Mm -hmm. And the conversation has now moved on to, can it work for my business, given my own context, my own constraints? So very much what, what, what I felt, if we want to take this to the next level, you know, recruiting the next couple of hundred companies to go through a trial and to make this work won't have the same level of impact in moving the needle as recruiting the first couple of hundred companies. And to me, the things that will really, you know, take us to the, 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 the next level again is can we move those bigger companies who are, you know, who are more co complex? So you take, for example, professional services and accountancy. If you could get one of the big four firms to move, and we know they've all been experimenting with this idea, they've been looking at this idea, then that would have huge ripple effects throughout that industry. So one of the things that I'm hoping that this new venture that I'm undertaking will achieve is it will give us the kind of infrastructure to support those larger organizations to, you know, who require much more bespoke specialized support than maybe some of the smaller firms taking part in the in the global trials we had been running to actually make that change. Is so does Curium Solutions where you're at now are they doing the same things then technically that four day week global was, was is it the same mission? No, I, Curium, who, who we've partnered with to kind of set up this new center of excellence for work time reduction, a lot of their work has been very much operational excellence stuff. So it's been working with companies to help them to find that kind of 15, 20% of inefficiency that might be there within their business. And for that reason, you know, one of the things that, that we've been finding at four day week is what we were doing was very specialized. The four day week was a conversation starter that got us in the room and got us having those conversations with leaders across very many different companies. But the reality was that, you know, if you spoke to 10 people, maybe only one of them was ready for a full blown four day week um, transition right away. And so with the other nine out of 10, what we were effectively saying to them was, you know, come back to us when or if you're ready. Whereas I think that that what I'm hoping that this new partnership can achieve is to actually support all of those companies to get a little bit closer, whether that's nine day fortnight, half day Fridays, slightly reduced work days, whether that's an operational excellence project that might mean they can look at a four day week, 12 months down the line. So it's, it's kind of, you know, broadening that conversation around work time reduction and really trying to, to, to work with those bigger organizations to help them make the switch where it is much more much more complex when you say partnership i want to understand the the business setup here so work time reduction center of excellence excellence is that your company now that's partnered with curium well, i want to understand the structure yeah that's right so so i i've partnered with with curium and it's really trying to bring together the experience i have in designing and implementing these shorter work week trials all over the world with the stuff that they've been doing very much in the operational excellence space um you know, which 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 gives us the kind of resource and capacity where we can do nine or 10 of these bigger projects all at once rather than one or two, which might have been the case previously. I see. And for this partnership, to get this partnership going, that's why you had to move to Toronto, because that's where Curium is based. Funnily enough, Curium actually are, are based in the U.S. and the U.K., so we're setting up a new business here in, in Canada, which is this Center of Excellence for Work Time Reduction. Um, we had actually made the, the the personal decision to move here prior to any of this, um, any of this, oh. you know, coming about. Oh. So uh, oh. it, there's a little bit of, of serendipity involved there, you know. Yeah. Um, right. Why? Why? Yeah. Why move to Canada? Yeah. 
Um, honestly, you know, as I said to you earlier, when we we moved to New York, it was kind of a one year thing. You know, we we didn't we didn't head for the airport saying we're leaving Ireland, we're emigrating, we're planning to stay for a year and come home. Sometime during the summer, we kind of decided, you know what, we're not ready to move home quite yet. Um, there was lots of things that we really loved about living in New York. You know, the sports for me, the arts, the culture, the theater for Grace. Um, but we're also kind of hoping to settle down and start a family soon. And, you know, we had, I, I, I guess that the healthcare and the quality of life offering here maybe felt a little bit closer to, you know, to home, maybe felt a little bit more closer to what as a European, um, you know, you would expect as a safety net. So, yeah, we kind of thought maybe this is a good halfway house. Maybe this gives us the balance of some of the things we loved about living in the States, but with a little bit about what we what we miss from home. I appreciate you uh, giving the story on that. Thank you for the listeners. What websites do you want to direct them to? Um, you know, work is work time reduction center of excellence. What's the URL or the website for that? So it's going to be worktimereduction.com and we're actually launching it next Tuesday. Um, okay. It's going to be the official launch of this, this new initiative. Um, so, you know, we're having this conversation really as we're, as we're building this and, 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 and really getting it off the ground. Um, and then Curium Solutions is curiumsolutions.com, I guess. Okay. Very good. Are you right. the sole, are you the sole owner? Is it you and Grace that own the LLC or whatever? uh for your company uh, are you the sole owner or is there partners yeah, are there investors it's, it's, a, it's a joint venture between between me and 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 curian okay very good all right uh thank you for for all of that i you know i think what you're doing is important i and i'm a huge fan i i feel like i'm kind of already doing it at riderflex to a certain degree i mean i haven't said to the team it's a four-day work week and we're officially closed on friday but Shit, I think I think most of my team, I don't think they do much on Friday already anyway. <laughs> you know, so I'm almost there. So I'm a huge fan. Um are you are you ever gonna run you, you strike me as the type of guy that would run for office someday. You 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 feel like a very social, political guy. Like like you have very strong beliefs, I think, that you would tell me about if we were having beers and we weren't recording. I feel that from you. <laughs> for sure who, who said i wouldn't do it while we're recording you know? Um, <laughs> you know are you are you uh do you have any aspirations for, for political uh, uh positions of any kind because i i feel that on you honestly you know if you had asked me that question 10 years ago um i would have said that i feel it's inevitable that at some point you know i would like to enter that world whether that's you know being the elected official or at least working in that in that space, um, I, I'm probably further away from that now than than I've ever been. You know, I think that that sometimes life just takes you in a different path. I feel the kind of work I'm doing now is is making the kind of change and the kind of impact that probably you know ha having some familiarity with the the constraints and the confines of the political system I might find very difficult to replicate um, in that world. You know, I, I, I get a, a buzz from this this work in a way that, you know, I don't feel the need that running for elected office will kind of will 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 do something for me that 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 I currently don't have. So, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I probably would have said that that 
it, there's probably like 10 people in the world that might end up running for political office and circumstance might mean that only one of them ends up doing it. And I feel I might be in the nine, um, you know, okay. Okay. I'm not living in Ireland anymore and uh, I'm doing something that I love and that, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't really see myself wanting to give up anytime soon. Okay. I'm going to ask you another question here and this one you may not want to, you may not want to answer because it's a little more sticky or a little more tricky, I guess is the right word. Um, what do you think about the current U.S. Uh, uh, political environment here? Um, what What are your thoughts? Do you feel like the country is continuing to move towards, um, I don't know, we'll call it more socialist type thoughts, socialism, uh, you know, hard to the left a little bit? Um, does it feel that way to you? Is that what you sense, that it's moving in that direction stronger and stronger? It doesn't feel that way to me. Um, I would say that the, the biggest concern that I would have as, you know, an outsider looking in, firstly, yeah. and as somebody who kind of, you know, who sat watching the the the, the footage from the the January uh, insurrection on, on, on television, that there is this undercurrent of division, instability, um, and uncertainty that that I certainly feel is there and is worrying, I think, not just for the United States, but but globally because of the, the position that that the United States holds within um, within global political discourse. And, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that you would describe as socialist um, or that, you know, is 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 kind of discussed as being socialist within uh -huh. your uh, U.S. political discussion is uh -huh. kind of mainstream in Europe. You know, I know. Right. Yeah. That's one of the reasons um, I asked you the question. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. so certainly I, I think, you know, if you take Bernie Sanders, for example, I think as a politician and as a character in terms of his rhetoric and the way he discusses issues, I think he probably he feels quite socialist vis-a-vis, um, -vis, you know, mainstream politics here in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. And that might well be the case. But if you look at, you know, his policy platform around things like universal health care, that's the kind of thing which you hear people saying it's socialist in the U.S., but it, it's kind of I mean, even Britain, who's probably one of the least socialist countries in Europe, has universal health care. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, I mean, I'm not sure that that's the problem. Um, I, I think part of it is is the two party, you know, situation. I think mm -hmm. part of it is, you know, the, the kinds of divisive figures that have been allowed to, to to kind of, you know, become front and center of the of the political system who are really interested in kind of pulling people apart rather than bringing them together. Um, do you blame do you blame social media, some of the social media outlets for this division? Do you do you do you look at Twitter and Facebook and and I don't know who else we want to throw in there, but do you look at these people and go, man, you guys are you guys are making these people fight even more. Do you look these do, do you sense that? Yeah, I think it's a it's a combination of, yes, have there been failings in terms of content moderation, in terms of, you know, how how those platforms have have, you know, have put information out there into the world during election campaigns. Yes, I do think that there's liability there. But I also think that there's an element of this that is just us grappling with what social media means for debate. You know, the the, the reality is, is that we're all affected by this. So like, as you can tell, I have my own views. And every time I go on social media, if I go on social media for two hours, I'm probably spending one hour, 58 or 59 minutes of that 
having my own views reinforced back at me because yes. of the kinds yes. of people that I follow. So, yes. you know, yes. when, when you already have views that are somewhat on the fringe of, of mainstream political discourse, you know, whereas before those views might have been, you know, fringe to the debate, social media has played a role in just magnifying those and putting those really front and center in a way that that becomes quite damaging. And I think that's what we're seeing play out now, you know? I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's so dangerous for people to see their feed and their feed is just giving them what they believe and what they think. And it's just reinforcing them, reinforcing them, reinforcing them. And they never see the other side. So then when they then when they put their phone down and they go down to the bar and they visit with real human beings, they're like, oh, shit. OK, actually, people do think differently. <laughs> uh you know, I could ask you a bunch of more questions on, on this topic, but yeah, I wanted to get your political uh, thoughts there. Um, do you, one, one more thing. I know we're almost out of time. Uh, do, do 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 the Irish do they see us as like wild cat like cowboys like everybody's got a gun and blah blah blah? Is that a, is that a is that how we're viewed? Uh, I mean, no, no, no more than you folks think that we're leprechauns chasing a pot of gold <laughs> down the rainbow. Um, no more than that. Uh, it's so funny. By the way, speaking of handguns, there's a there's an interesting topic we could do a whole episode on. Uh, didn't Trudeau just uh, outlaw handguns? Outlaw the sale of handguns or something like that in Canada? I don't know what the what he did. Uh, something about the licensing and sale of handguns in Canada or something. I, I, I'm misquoting what, what really happened, but I saw something on that. And I thought, wow, if they try to take, if they try to take handguns away from Americans, it might be, uh, it might get messy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, again, I'm probably showing, I, I, I seen that it came up on my feed cause I kind of start getting Canadian stuff now that I live here. And, and yeah. so I did, I did spot that without really looking into it in any detail, but yeah, yeah I mean, that's something which is is such a, a hot button issue in the U.S. and it's such big, a big it's such a, a you know I, it, it really is I'm not going to say it's split down the middle but there is, is. Two, yeah, I, I think so it might yeah. be you know there but there's there is certainly two schools of thought which are equally vociferous in their views yeah. I mean that would be like the views that one side of that debate hold in America would be like a fringe 1% that wouldn't even get, they would get laughed out of town in, in, Ireland. in, in Ireland or in, in most of Europe. That's fascinating. That's like fascinating. The, the idea that, you know, that this is some, and look, it, there's lots of historical, political, oh, cultural yeah. reasons for this, yeah. but the idea that this is something that's like a God-given right that, that you know, mm. um, almost uh, having a political and policy discussion about what's the right thing to do you know, falls underneath, you know, like you see it on Twitter, like you see debates, like it is frightening if you read down, you know, yeah. people who are saying we need gun control and literally you could have 10 people in the feed saying, you know, you come and take it off me. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's crazy, it's man. Like, it's, but it, it's I, frightening. I feel like almost every topic in the United States is split down the middle. It doesn't, it's, it, it seems to me that no matter what we're debating as U.S. citizens, you name it, abortion, whatever. It's it's like always split down the middle. I, rarely in this country do we talk about something where it's like 80 percent on one side and 20 percent on the other. I, it's like we just love to fight about stuff. I don't know. By the way, one, one last thing. Uh, the percentage of people in Ireland that, that own a gun is like what? Like one percent. That's like totally rare. 
I mean, it it, it is it is. I I wouldn't be able to answer that question because the idea of gun ownership as a so, as, as even wow. an issue is like you know unless somebody was like you know hunting or they happen to have like their grandfather's you know yeah. um, novelty <laughs> weapon in there like the, the idea of this uh, even being something that that is worth fighting about is is just so far away from wow. from from normality or reality you know when you run for office my friend we're gonna i gotta have you back on because we could talk about i could get you on for an hour we could talk about social and political topics man holy cow yeah i, I feel you headed that way i don't know what's what's the future is for you necessarily but i love what you're doing on the movement the, you know the work-life balance the four-day work week i mean you what you're doing is important and i know as a 55 year old that basically almost killed myself through most of my career and didn't spend the proper time with my children when they were at home. And I really regret that. You know, I think what you're doing is important. And and I'm a huge supporter. So keep keep going. You know, keep keep, keep pushing it as much as you can. And I'm happy to help promote it uh, on the Rider Flex podcast uh, as much as possible because uh, I'm a fan. I rarely these days do I work on Friday. I'm usually in the Colorado mountains hiking or, or doing whatever, you know. So I'm a fan, my friend. Sounds good. Colorado is is on my is on my wish list of places I want to get to um, in this side of the world. So, well, when you come, we'll have a pint together. Sounds good to me.